Welcome to Evolution Impossible, a production of 3ABN Australia Television. Our host is Dr. Sven Estring with special guest Dr. John Ashton and our panel. Welcome back to our series Evolution Impossible, where we are currently exploring whether the fossil record supports evolution. My name is Dr. Sven Erstring, and we're privileged to have Dr. John Ashton joining us again. Thanks for being here. And we also have Justin Tarosian. Uh, good to have you here. My good friend, Morgan Vincent, and also Stephen Aveling Bro. We love hearing your infectious laugh. You know, it's an all-male team, guys, uh, but that's, that's fine. One of the things that we have in evolution is that there's a fairly smooth transition from one species of an animal to another. So there should have been a whole lot of animals in between fish and reptiles, and in the same way between dinosaurs and birds. This means that there should have been a lot of fossils of these intermediate animals. The question is, do these fossils exist? It feels a little bit like a detective story, looking for the links in the chain. So, John, uh, going back to our previous episode, we had a question about uniformitarianism. It's a long word. Uh, but can you share with us what is that concept and how does it apply to geology and also fossils as well? Okay, so the concept of uniformitarianism, I think I mentioned briefly, was proposed by James Hutton. In one of his books he wrote about uh, 1785 and the idea was that the processes on earth have been going on much as they are today but for millions of years and so we we get these gradual changes over time you know the boulders are rounded over time by wind action there's wave action eroding rocks and and so by studying what happens today uh, we can you know assume that that's essentially happened over the past now, one of the reasons why this is very important is that um, evolution requires a lot of generations to produce all these supposed mutations uh, to evolve new creatures. So they need long periods of time. And therefore, the Bible's short time frame just didn't, didn't fit didn't that. Fit. Mm. Yeah. So they needed very, very long times for evolution to, to fit, for the evolutionary model. Yeah. And, and John, one of the questions I have is that obviously um, scientists recognise that there were extinction events, uh, meteorite, uh, you know, uh, cr um, being crashed into the earth and things like that. Um, so you've got these catastrophes and you've got these uniformitarian processes. So how do they decide uh, whether it's a catastrophe or a uniformitarian process which is actually generating this geological feature? Well, okay, <laughs> That's, uh, an interesting question. I mean, we've got uh, the the layer of uh, particular mineralizations associated with the dis extinction of the dinosaurs at the end of the Cretaceous and this sort of thing. One of the theories for that is, you know, that was a meteorite impact and and so mm -hmm. forth. But the the thing is that we actually don't know the mechanism. Where did the meteorite land? You know, well, there, there's so many. Anybody can put up so, all sorts of theories. But what does the evidence uh, tell us? The evidence tells us that there was a massive water-based catastrophic event, and 
right. and uh, eliminated uh, and buried the, the animals, you know, mm. as opposed to all these, you know, we, we can all sit around the fire and come up with fanciful events of a meteorite hitting and tidal waves and all this sort of thing. Mm. Um, and it's true, you know, there are catastrophic events and we can probably discuss that in more detail. Sure. Mm. And one of the things which really interests people is dinosaurs. And uh, it's a fascinating topic. And I know, Justin, you actually had a real interest in this topic as well. So did you have a question on that for John? Yeah, I did. In chapter five, the last chapter, uh, but it ties into this one because of the fossil record, you bring up how uh, you know, Dr. Mary Schweitzer and her team uh, discovered a T-Rex with soft tissue in it. And you listed a number of others that I, I hadn't heard. And my question is, I first read an article by Mary Schweitzer about their discovery a few years ago, and oh. she said that when they realized that this was uh, a not fully fossilized T-Rex, uh, she said, I just got chills because we all know these things don't last for millions of years. And so considering these things are not really trumpeted and most people don't know about them, but at the same time, they're not hidden and buried. What is the scientific community doing with this? And Schweitzer and her team and others, what do they, uh, what do they believe about it since it's not something that lasts for millions of years? Right, well, it's very interesting. When we study the chemistry of these biopolymer molecules, these long chain molecules that are associated with the soft tissue remains that they uh, discovered there, uh, we've done experiments at different temperatures. We know how quickly they would break down. For example, DNA, if it's mm. stored at um, you know, about uh, 20 degrees, for example, would last you know, only a short period of time. If it was only 10 degrees, the average temperature might last a few thousand years longer. Mm. This sort of thing. Mm. So the fact that we find these long polymer molecules seriously challenges the long age dates for the, for the dinosaurs, for example. Mm. And we find soft tissues in, in other things. They've extracted DNA from leaves and other things as well. Mm. But one of the uh, issues that they're facing now is, well, okay, under the conditions that they were buried, somehow they were preserved. <laughs> you know, so it really it defies our current biochemical understanding of the stability of these molecules, right? Which, as studied by chemists, mm. so the chemists say, "Well, hang on, those molecules can't last that long." Mm. The geologists, if they cling to their long ages, they say, "Well, they must have." Mm. So there must be some other mechanism that has helped preserve them mm. that we don't know. Maybe there's some iron there or, you know, they're, they're putting forward all sorts of hmm. suggestions that maybe there's some preservation mechanism. Hmm. But really, they've found so many different types of soft tissue now in the dinosaur remains wow. that it really just these other attempts to come up with preservation mechanisms just don't fit known chemistry. Mm. So the bottom line is it's pointing that they can't be millions of years old. They must be only thousands of years old at max. Yeah. So John, part of what happens in evolutionary science sounds to me like if you, you come across some phenomena and, um, and then evolutionary science is just looking for an explanation which could confirm evolution rather than necessarily trying to find what actually happened. Is that, is that what happens, you know, in terms of there's real push towards evolutionary explanations that are going on? Oh, definitely. Mm. I mean, because this is the dominant paradigm in science. And so that's what everybody is looking for. Um, in fact, there is no other paradigm other than God and creation and uh, you and you're not going to publish a scientific paper that goes there it just won't get published unfortunately 
Um, so, you know, so that's the issue. Yeah, they, they're forced into that particular square, which is really sad, but uh, that they attempt to hold on to this when the evidence is overwhelmingly pointing in the direction that evolution is not only absolutely impossible, but never happened mm. as well. Mm -hmm. um, and, but again, more and more, you know, scientists, that, particularly older scientists that aren't worried about losing their jobs, uh, are saying, well, hang on, you know, let's look at this realistically. The evidence isn't there. And one of the key factors is, as you mentioned earlier, the absence of intermediate species in the fossil record. Mm. This is very, very significant. Yes. So t tell us, in terms of this transitional fossils, we also come across the term genetic drift. Oh. Uh, so can you explain what that term really means, genetic drift? Yeah, sure. Okay. So as the um, different organisms evolve, th this is the standard mechanism of trying to explain how new body parts could form, you see. So they're, they're saying, well, uh, assuming that enough genes are transferred, uh, then we can get sufficient changes to make some new sort of organism. The whole problem with that theory, that, and, and people talk about, oh, it's genetic drift, you know, and this is, and we can see this movement of genes and all these new creatures formed. But essentially, it's like I, I mentioned previously, if we try to simplify it down so we can understand it, if we have the code FIN, mm. right, which we interpret as fin, right, we have to make that into a ARM. No genetic drift, no many, uh, you know, as many times as you reproduce mm. the word FIN, NIF, IFN, you know, all the different combinations, you're mm. never going to end up with ARM. Mm. No way. Mm. It's totally new code and that's what they miss mm. they miss the fact that for all these new developments you need totally new code this genetic drift you know concept that they, what they're hoping for is that somehow these segments mm. of genes that will come across will somehow trigger this new viable mechanism mm. it, it's absolutely impossible because you know not only have you got to have the code work but you got to have all the other codes and mm. the amount of genetic information to move from a fin to an arm wow. shoulder blade you know, system mm. is enormous just and i think what happens is that people we just don't think, our mind can't comprehend the enormity mm. of the genetic code. Yes. And, we, and it's mm. just glossed over. Mm. And the other thing is too, we've got to remember that to, you know, many uh, of our current educators in this sort of thing have grown up being taught all this series of, of evolution. And as I mentioned previously, we've got these books now for young children, you know, um, ages three to five, teaching them about evolution, you know, five to seven, five to eight, you know, early primary school. And they're being taught, you know, fish evolved into amphibians, amphibians mm. into reptiles, reptiles into dinosaurs and birds and mammals. And, mm. you it's know, a story about that. And, and it, yeah, it's, it's just mm. inculcated at a very early age. And this is so wrong on the basis of what we now know you know, from biochemistry, from paleontology and so forth. Yeah. So moving on to this concept of transitional fossils. Yes. Um, so uh, basically the idea was uh, from Darwin uh, that as this genetic drift occurred, as mutations occurred, 
um, after about a thousand generations or ten thousand generations, you'd you'd branch and you'd become a new species. So mm. the the challenge is, well, where are the fossils on that Between. pathway mm. through? Yeah. So so tell us, are they there? <coughs> no. No. <laughs> That's so, a simple answer. They're not there. And when you think about it, you think about, and we talked about uh, previously, you know, 98% of the species are extinct and we've got, you know, millions of species already here. So that means we're looking at, you know, 100 million sp- to 200 million species in the past. Mm. All those species had to evolve by our evolutionary intermediate stages, mm. we should mm. find Trillions. huge <laughs> amounts of all these intermediate evolutionary species mm. of, you know, trilobites evolving, butterflies, you know, insects, you know, and rhinoceroses, mm. all, all these sort of things. But we don't find them. They're not there. Yeah. You know, mm. turtles just form as turtles. Now, if we look at flight, we've got, uh, what, birds, insects, Bats and the extinct um, predators. Okay, so um, <coughs> we got these types of fo- all the fossils of those creatures appear fully formed. Mm. So if we take so birds, no transitions. No transitions. And so if we look at birds, for example, birds have hollow bones. They've got different breathing systems. You know, air sacs mm. that go directly associated with the heart and so forth. Mm. Digestive system. Totally different structures. The codes for these are absolutely massive. Absolutely massive codes, and not even close to each other. And and mm. um, and there's no evolutionary Pathway. steps for this. The same with insects. And we mm. look at you know we have this picture of a dragonfly up earlier. Um, the the structure, you know, to compose the wings of that dragonfly and the amazing flight that it can perform. Mm. The genetic code mm. to build all those structures. And in a butterfly and, and even just in the wings, you know, a guy got his doctor a few years ago at uh, University of California, San Diego looking at the patents in the, in the butterfly wings sort of thing and their mm. optic properties. And I remember he saying, you know, somehow nature knew how to uh, make these defects that produce these beautiful colours, you mm. know, <laughs> <the> camouflage <laughs> and this sort of mm. thing. Yeah, called it uh, defects, crystal defects, so that we diffract the light and so forth. Um, but it's all represented by code, complex oh, codes, and this is what... And then As suddenly an engineer, I love it. Yeah, <laughs> and these creatures just suddenly form, and they're there. And the same with flowering plants, all the different parts of flowering plants. Mm. And when we go to birds, again, with feathers, you know, when you think of the structure of the feathers, you know, and the classic example are, oh, well, birds evolved from dinosaurs, and dinosaurs, some of them had scales, and these scales solely formed feathers... Man, when you look at the structure of a feather, mm. it's, it's amazing. Totally You've different. got this yeah. this hook, uh, barb and barbel system, you know, this uh, like a Velcro thing. Mm. But it's not only Velcro, it's Velcro that slides. Mm. Mm. <laughs> but there's more. The whole thing would, you know, a feather, you get an old feather and you put water on it, it just all crumples up. With birds in flight, if they didn't oil their feathers, those barbels wouldn't slip as easily. And the other thing is they would fall out of the sky because the feathers would get wet and they die. They've got to have a preening gland Mm. producing oil, Mm. which is a particular biochemical molecular structure. You've got to have code for all that. Plus the preening gland has to arise at the same time as the feathers Mm. or the feathers don't work. (coughs) But just the biochemistry associated with the preening gland. And if the preening gland 
was on the top of his head, he wouldn't be able to reach it with his beak to get the oil to spread mm. down. You know, it's got to be in just mm. the right mm. spot. The, it's brilliant engineering, and yet the evolutionists believe that this all arose by blind chance. There's no intermediates, mm. and that's just one little creature that we're talking about, let alone all the different types of insects, all the bats, their sonar, mm. how they can adjust their sonar to allow for diffraction of the sound wave into water. You know, it just blows your mind. And then we get into the plant kingdoms and the structure of flowers and wow. pollination. You're going to need the insects <clears throat> at the same time as the flowers. The insects don't have food or the flowers can't be pollinated. Mm. So contrary to and, yeah. and all the intermediate steps to make all yeah. these creatures, yeah. or where are all the fossils of all the intermediates developing? Mm. They're not there. Yeah. Mm. We find just fully formed animals. Mm. They don't change. Yes, so contrary to what many scientists would suggest when asked the question, well, where are the intermediary species? Yeah. Um, it's not just a few that are missing. It's, it would have to be millions. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's not any small thing, but it's a massive hole in, in the theory of evolution. It is. Well, the one of the, the one evidence of, is absent. Sorry. No, one, one example of that that I came across in reading your book there, the Cambrian explosion. Mm. You know, if we look at the, the Precambrian strata and the... the uh, what's been preserved in that in contrast with the huge diversity and array of life mm. that's in the, uh, the Cambrian strata, so to speak. You know, how does that fit in with the evolutionary perspective? Where did the information come from to have such a sudden entry of all these mm. different species? Well, that's right. It's, a, it's the Cambrian e explosion, isn't it? Mm. And um, I, mean, I mean, books have been written on this, you know, separate books. Stephen Myers. Stephen Myers book, uh, for example. Yep. Yeah, Darwin's yeah. Doubt. Um, and, and that's a, a classic example. And this is very early. This is right down the bottom of the fossil layer. We've got these highly complex creatures. And we find the fossils of the fully formed, fully functional creatures, but no fossils of them developing from some ancestor, mm. some previous ancestor. And yet, as you say, we find examples where conformably underneath these Cambrian rocks are these earlier sedimentary rocks, completely free of fossils. So Stephen Meyer's book, his title, Darwin's Doubt, actually kind of leads us to or points us to the idea that Darwin himself was questioning evolution based on the fossil record. Do, is, that, is that true? Was, was Darwin worried about these uh, lack of transitional Look, there, fossils? Look, there are a number of issues that Darwin... Uh, thought with the theory. I, d I don't think he saw that it would blow up to be what it, you know, has has to come. You know, I mean, he put his theory out there. He was interested in putting out a new theory for people to uh, grab hold of, and I think people really grabbed hold of it because, as we uh, discussed earlier, mm. it was now a mechanical model that could be mm. applied to the biological sciences. And this sort of raised their status a little bit, you know, in terms they could compete with the physicists and yeah. chemists and engineers. And the theologians. <laughs> well, the theologians were more or less left out. Yeah, but they were, they were the opposition now. The and opposite. they had an answer to challenge the biblical perspective. And, um, you know, at the, at the time, I guess, 
the, uh, the biblical supporters didn't have as much of the biochemistry and geological evidence as we have today mm. to knock the theory on its head. But I mean, a number of commentators have, have pointed out that if Darwin put forward his theory today on the basis of what we know today about DNA and the fossil record and so forth, um, it just wouldn't get up. Mm. So, oh yeah, nice, but doesn't fit the data, you know. Yeah. Morgan, did you have a question for John today? Yeah, it's, it's, it may seem a simple question, but sometimes the simple questions are foundational. Mm. And the question is simply this, what do the fossils then tell us? Well, the fossil t- fossils tell us quite clearly that creatures were created fully formed. So this fits mm. the creation model in the, in the Bible. There's no evidence of evolution in the, in the Bible and uh well in in the in the rock record so in other words it fits the biblical picture perfectly where we see the bible created all the different creatures under their after their kind and there's another reason why the biblical model makes sense too and that's the ecological position so many different species depend on one another you know we talked about pollination and insects and birds and bats that can play a role in pollination so we have these ecosystems as such and that's what the bible describes and that's why the bible talks about creation in Mm. six days Mm. Mm in a very, very short time period. And this is again where evolutionary theory has major problems in terms of ecological systems. And you know, and some people want to cross over and go into theistic evolution and this sort of thing. They, they've got major problems there as well mm-hmm. and from a number of different areas. But uh, the, the fossil record paints the Bible picture that there was all these creatures existed and they were wiped out suddenly in a, in a flood. Mm. And one of the fascinating things is too that they haven't changed like over millions of years with the transitions. Like the coleocanth, we're finding fossils in rocks that they date 380 million years old or 350 million years old. Yeah, very long time. And yet we find uh, we these fish are alive today in the Indian Ocean Hmm. that look exactly the same. (laughs) They haven't morphed in any way. They haven't Hmm. changed in any way from those particular fish. And I think I mentioned Dr. Carl Werner in another episode who studied the, uh, uh, the exhibits <coughs> in um, museums and he photographed the exhibit in the museum and then photographed the live creature today mm. and showed in hundreds of examples across many different phyla, there's no change. Mm. They haven't changed over many years. But if genetic drift was occurring, you, you'd expect there'd be this slow transition away from those original species, um, you know, in, which are fossilised to what we have today. Yeah, and, and I mean, let's, we, we've been recording science, you know, for the last couple of thousand years, really. You know, sure. Since the Greek era, we've been making observations since Aristotle and so forth. And we haven't observed any evolution. We've tried to speed it up in the lab. We haven't observed that. But when you think about it, if there's been, you know, a couple of hundred million species evolved over the last 600 million years, we should see a new species in mm. fully evolved evolving mm. every you know three or four years or so we mm. haven't observed in the past 2000 years we haven't observed any evolution mm. so we don't see these transitions something else that you mentioned in your book about uh, dr carl werner i think it was was that um, he and his wife discovered that as they did research in different museums and places that there were at least 430 different mammals that were found fossilized with dinosaurs including birds uh, which, of course, was supposedly to have evolved from dinosaurs. And yeah, so, yeah. but 
of all the 60 museums they went into, none of these actually shared these in their displays. And I guess uh, my question is, at what point do you think scientists and archaeologists, paleontologists rather, will, will say, well, we don't know how to answer how this happened, but here it is, and to actually show the public? Hmm. Yes. Well, I think the, the issue is, as I said, we have so many books purporting to show evolution in all mm. sorts of pictorial forms uh, from, you know, kindergarten onwards, um, that it's very difficult. The, the museums are following that picture. Mm. There are leading paleontologists that have questioned this and said, well, hang on, we don't actually find this evolutionary evidence in the fossil record. Mm. And one but of those would have been Stephen Jay Gould from Harvard? Well, he was more that, yes, he did, he did say that, and, then, and hence his punctuated equilibrium that somehow there were sort of massive changes that occurred at very short, mm. short nose producers. And Eugene and what do you think the same of, thing. What do you think of punctuated equilibrium? You know, this idea that there was this kind of um, stasis and then this massive jumps. Yes, well, that's, a, you know, that's another fairy tale that people are clinging hopes on that somehow all this massive new code can arise by chance. There's mm -hmm. some sort of environmental condition that just promotes massive new meaningful code, but that's wishful thinking. You know, it's, mm -hmm. a, it's a fairy tale. It's the frog turning into a prince type mm -hmm. thing. You know, we can, mm -hmm. we can wish that, but where's the scientific evidence? It's not going to happen. Yes. The code is just so massive and so complicated, and yet it works. All those different little functioning bits all line up, mm. you know, and the biochemistry is far more complex. You know, we have biochemists that specialise in just a particular area of science, in this area of science, and the biochemistry is so huge, mm. you know, and that's just the biochemistry, let alone, you know, anatomy and physiology and all the structures that go along with it, all the engineering bits, you know. Mm. And following on from uh, Justin's question um, and a comment that you made earlier, uh, you made the observation that we, you'd never get a scientific pub, um, paper published uh, which made reference to, to God or the Bible or to supernatural miracles. Um, I mean, why, why is that the case? If, if science is the search <clears throat> for truth and, and God exists and he, he created um, species supernaturally, why, why couldn't we publish that in a scientific journal? I think it's just a cultural change and a social change where political groups, atheism is the dominant culture within within science and it fails to recognise that many of the leading scientists in the past were very devout Bible students, believed in God and they made a number of the major scientific breakthroughs and, and the dominance of Christians right through to the mid-1950s was very strong in university. But since that time, unfortunately, it's been squeezed out and this is where it all needs to be reversed now and the evidence pointed out, the evidence is overwhelming for the existence of a creator in God. Mm. No, it's, it's fascinating. And so what we're looking at here is this fossil record mm. and all of these, um, these animals and, and plants uh, which have existed down through the years, but we just don't find these transitional uh, fossils. It, it's really, really amazing. And, you know, the fact is that it is intriguing that we find um, these, these fossils, but at the same time, we have a, an opportunity where we can't see these, these transitional forms. We have this massive theory of evolution, but all the links are just not there in the fossil record. 
And the question is, where does that leave the whole theory? You know, it seems to me that evolution is looking more and more impossible. And the good news is this, is if you have really enjoyed the discussion that we've had today and you would like to learn more about the scientific evidence, about fossils, about um, paleontology, about geology, I'd like to encourage you to go to your favorite online bookstore and get Dr. John Ashton's book, Evolution Impossible. It's a fantastic read, um, easy to understand, but really, really informative as well. And next time, uh, we're going to be exploring the very reason why there are all these fossils buried in the ground. And you might be really surprised, could it be the flood which the Bible is talking about? And remember, you can watch any of these previous videos on our website on 3ABN. for joining us on Evolution Impossible, a production of 3ABN Australia Television. If you have any comments or questions, send an email to radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au or call us within Australia on 024973 3456. We'd love to hear from you.